How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm here today with our special guest, Richard Haas, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, who has just written his 15th book, The World, A Brief Introduction, uh, which I highly recommend everybody to read. I have read it uh, basically in one sitting. It is a great introduction to what's going on in the world, and we're going to talk about that. But let's talk a little bit about Richard himself, and I should disclose that I am the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, thanks in large part to uh, Richard's help, and I work with him uh, on many different things over the years, but I'll try to give a dispassionate interview uh, about this book. So, Richard... uh, Let's talk a little bit about, before we get into the book, your own background. Uh, you grew up in New York area, is that right? I was born in Brooklyn, a place you may have heard of. Grew up on Long Island and lived there for the first 18 years of my uh, life. Went away to school, first in Ohio, then in England. Uh, spent years and years and years in Washington and moved back to New York 18 years ago. Well, it's a little bit modest of you. Let's dig into this a minute. You went to Oberlin where you were an athlete, you played soccer, but you were a Rhodes Scholar. So uh, to be a Rhodes Scholar, only 32 picked every year. Uh, so that's pretty impressive. Uh, what did you actually do to win a Rhodes Scholarship? Was it your soccer or your foreign policy expertise? <laughs> well, it's a running question in my, in my family. My children are convinced it was an administrative mistake. They clearly confused me with uh, somebody else. I actually think the reason I may have gotten it is I was so different from the other candidates. Everybody else had a 4.0 grade average. Everybody else was essentially straightforward. I took uh, all my courses on a credit no entry basis. I had taken a year off in the Middle East. I was writing a column for the uh, college newspaper. I had made films. So basically, I think they didn't know what to do with me. Everybody else canceled out. And at the end of the day, I somehow won a Rhodes Scholarship. So you got your PhD at Oxford. And you taught at Harvard for a while at the Kennedy School. And then uh, you went to work in the Pentagon. You worked at the National Security Council. You worked at the State Department. You worked at Brookings in charge of foreign policy. And for the last 18 years, you have headed the uh, Council on Foreign Relations. For those people that are watching, what actually is the Council on Foreign Relations? We're an organization that was formed 99 years ago in the aftermath of World War I. The whole idea was to have this this group that was dedicated to talking about America's role in the world. There was a bias against isolationism. It clearly didn't work when the League of Nations was was turned down. What it is now, 99 years later, is a membership organization. We've got 5,000 members across the country who meet. We're a publisher. We publish Foreign Affairs Magazine, the leading journal in the field. We have uh, our own think tank. We have 75 or 80 uh, scholars. We're an educational institution. We're perhaps the, now the preeminent producer of materials for high schools and colleges teaching young people about the world. 
So obviously, nobody who reads this book is going to know as much as you know about all these issues. You've been doing this your whole life, and you obviously know everything about foreign policy that anybody could probably know uh, within reason. But why should somebody read this book? And who did you write this book for? Well, I wrote the book because there's such a gap between the objective importance of this world we live in and what most people in this or other countries know about it. It turns out you can graduate from virtually any high school or two or four year college in this country and essentially be, it's a harsh term, but I'll use it globally illiterate, not really understand the way the world works and why it matters, not understand the basic foreign policy questions. You could watch the evening news in this country and not learn uh, much or anything about uh, the world. You can go on the internet for sure, but there's so much stuff there. It's not authenticated. It's not comprehensive. It's not systematic. So what I try to do was write a book that would give people a foundation about what I thought they needed to know about the world, make it accessible, make it relatively short, and try to narrow the gap, again, between this world that's affecting our lives so fundamentally and what most people know. And my goal here, David, sorry to go on so long, is to, among other things, make more informed citizens. I'm old-fashioned. And I believe that democracy rests on having an informed citizenry. That way they can make good choices. They can hold their elected officials to account. They can make good choices in their personal life. So that was my goal here, to essentially help bring that about. So let's talk about uh, foreign policy for a moment. Let's assume I don't know much about foreign policy. And I'm just listening to you. And I say, OK, I see you on Morning Joe. I might read this book. Uh, but maybe I'd just like to hear a teaser about it. So let's go through the world right now. Uh, for example, what are the biggest challenges in the foreign policy world for Asia? What's the biggest challenge that Asia, and particularly China, has now? Well, I think the biggest challenge in Asia is China. How do you deal with this rising power? No single country in the region is able to offset or deal with China successfully on its own. So how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you encourage China to use its growing power responsibly? How do you discourage China from doing things that put other countries in the region at risk? All right. What's the biggest challenge in um, the Middle East right now? Well, that's hard to say because the Middle East is almost entirely uh, a challenge. It's the least stable, most turbulent part of the world. I would say probably the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges is the growing power of Iran and the fact that Iran is what you might call an imperial power, not content to accept things the way they are. But I think the fact that Egypt's 100 million people is not a successful country the Israeli-Palestinian issue is anything but resolved. There's three essentially failed states, uh, civil wars in, in Syria, in Libya, and in Yemen. So at the Middle East, it's actually hard to limit uh, the answer to a challenge. The entire region is a challenge. What about the biggest challenge in Africa or sub-Saharan Africa? Biggest challenge in Africa is the growing population. Over the next 25, 30, 40 years, Africa could go up by a billion people. The rest of the world is aging. Most parts of the rest of the world are actually getting smaller in population. Africa is really growing. And the real question is, what do you do with all these young people? How do you find them jobs, particularly at a moment in history when technologies are coming along, as you know, that are displacing so many jobs? What about Europe, the biggest challenge for Europe right now? Well, one challenge is Russia and the use of force by Russia. Another challenge is essentially to make the European project viable. This has been one of the great successes after World War II. And one of the very few good things to happen since the pandemic hit, David, is we're seeing the revival of Franco-German collaboration, the strengthening of trans-European institutions. And I think making the European Union essentially a successful entity 
even in the aftermath of Brexit, is a big task. But I'm actually pleased to say there's been some progress recently. Now, in your book, you uh, describe the Americas and kind of lump together the U.S. and a little bit and uh, Latin America and Central America. But let's break them in part. The greatest challenge right now facing Latin America, what would you say that is? Probably two things. One is simply making societies work. You've got a lot of populist leaders, Brazil, Mexico, and these are not successful societies, essentially bringing about effective governance. What's so interesting about Latin America and Africa, for that matter, is the geopolitics. Relations between and among countries are not the, are not bad. That's not the issue. The real question is stability and governance and effectiveness within, within countries, and Mexico and, and Brazil are two of the most important countries in the region. I would say neither is successful. In addition, you've got the problems of Venezuela, essentially a failed state that's hemorrhaging people, kept viable by a large Cuban intelligence and security presence. You've got the drugs, the gangs uh, in places like Central America. So what you have in many cases are weak, weak governments that can't fulfill the obligations that we generally understand governments are meant to within their borders. And the United States, what's the biggest challenge for the United States in terms of national security or international affairs? It's a great question. I think probably two. One is domestically. Look at the challenges we now face, even before the pandemic. The inequality, the infrastructure, we've got real problems with K through 12 uh, education. Tens of millions of Americans don't have health care. We've got racism, tens of millions of people out of work. So the domestic challenges facing the United States, all of which absorb our attention, our resources, our bandwidth. And then I think there's real intellectual confusion or disarray uh, about America's role in the world. For 70, 75 years, we have been the, the principal architect, the principal general contractor of the world. We have made the world work. We've been amazingly successful by any and every historical measure over the last three quarters of a century. But increasingly, Americans are walking away from that. They're tired. They, they only see the costs. They don't see the benefits. And I think there's a real problem for the United States and the world because things are beginning to unravel. And as we've learned with this pandemic, as we learned the 9-11, uh, without the United States playing an active role, things go badly in the world. And we, in turn, are affected and we're affected by, uh, for the worse. So as you look back your, your life, during your lifetime, what would you say is the best foreign policy or one of the two best foreign policy decisions the United States has made? And what would you say are one or two of the worst foreign policy decisions the United States has made during your lifetime? Well, one I was lucky enough to be involved with, which was uh, the decision in 1990-1991 to resist Saddam Hussein when he invaded Kuwait. In retrospect, it may have looked obvious that we would do it, but it didn't look so obvious at the time. By and large, successes never looked quite so obvious at the time, only in retrospect. But the idea that we'd send half a million Americans halfway around the world, that we'd build this international coalition, the, the decision to resist and to turn that around. First, we tried diplomacy, then we tried sanctions, only ultimately did we try military force. I think that was a remarkably good decision, along with what we didn't do at the time, David. The willingness to show the discipline not to go on Baghdad after the successful battle. I remember the conversation I had with President Bush, 41 at the time, and I basically talked about the mistake I thought Harry Truman and Douglas MacArthur made, that after they, they kicked North Korea out of South Korea, they, they rebuffed the invasion. So instead of stopping there, they tried to reunify all of Korea by military force. In the process, China came into the war, 
and another 20,000 Americans lost their lives and we didn't gain any territory in the process. So sometimes in foreign policy, what you don't do can also be every bit as significant as what you do do. So I thought President Bush 41 got it right, both in resisting Iraqi aggression and then in showing the discipline when to stop. You asked me about the worst decisions. I got a long list there. Uh, I just mentioned one, the decision to go north of the 38th parallel in 1950 in Korea. I think Vietnam. More recently, I would say the Iraq War. Those are three wars of choice. Uh, Afghanistan, in some ways, like Korea, morphed into a war of choice when we got too ambitious. So it's when we use military force, not when our vital interests are at stake, but when we get ambitious and we ask a lot and perhaps too much and the wrong things of military force. That's when I think the United States gets into trouble. So in your time in foreign policy world, in working in government or in academic life or in the think tank world or at the council, who would you say are the one or two most impressive uh, U.S. Uh, leaders you've met in the foreign policy world? And who would be one of the two most impressive foreign policy leaders you've met who are not Americans? In the United States, uh, one person is Brent Scowcroft. He, if you ask people who is the greatest national security advisor this country's ever had, I think Brent shows up at the top of more people's lists. He got the balance right between being the honest broker on one hand, but also being the counselor to the president. Jim Baker was, uh, out of all the secretaries of state I've worked with, was, I thought, the most effective. Henry Kissinger, who I didn't work with, but I've gotten to know over the decades, is clearly the great scholar practitioner of this uh, era. And that's uh, of the presidents I've worked with, and I've been lucky enough to work for four, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and both Presidents Bush. I would say President Bush, the father, would be at the top of my list on the foreign policy of the great foreign policy presidents. People around the world, uh, top of my list would be Yitzhak Rabin, out of all the foreign leaders I, I dealt with. The fact that he was willing to make peace, and what was so interesting about him, David, I would describe him as a reluctant peacemaker. In some ways, um, if you're an enthusiastic peacemaker, uh, like Shimon Peres, you sometimes get into trouble because you can't bring a reluctant public along with you. But Itzhak Rabin was a reluctant peacemaker. And the fact that he was able to wrestle with uh, and publicly talk about his reluctance, he was able to bring the country along. So that's what makes a great leader. Not simply that you have direction, but you were able to persuade other people to follow you. So for me, Rabin was the most extraordinary uh, foreign leader I was lucky enough to work with. So suppose uh, whoever is elected president and they called you up and said, look, forget the past. I just want to know about the future. What are the one or two most important things I should do, Richard? What would you advise the next president of the United States to do in terms of foreign policy decisions? The first thing I would do is I would invest in America's alliances, David. You know, the United States has what? Several dozen allies in Europe and Asia. And if we work with them, not only do we push back against, say, Russia in Europe or push back against China in Asia, but these are the partners we have to tackle every other issue under the sun, from climate change to public health to dealing with cyberspace. We don't want to do it unilaterally. These are our force multipliers. So if I could tell a new president there's one thing to invest in, it would be in our, in our alliances, not in the narrow military sense, so that's important, but in the larger sense, because these are the partnerships we need in order to deal with regional and global challenges. Now, um, a couple issues you mentioned in your book that uh, we don't have time to go through them in great detail, but I'd like you to just mention a few of them. 
why you're worried about issues like, let's talk about migration. Why is migration a big problem right now? Well, we're living in a time in the world where roughly one out of every 100 people in the world, probably about 80 million, uh, are involuntarily on the move. These are not people who are moving because of jobs. These are people who are, who are forced to move within their own country, in which case they're called internally displaced or they're forced to cross borders. It could be by violence, it could be by drought, say stimulated by, by climate change. It could be like by repression, the Rohingya, who were forced into Bangladesh. So just as a humanitarian issue, but also we've seen wars historically begin because of uh, the, the flows of people. It can also cause great instability. It can be a real burden for the countries that, that, that have to take them in. So to me, migration is a real issue in the negative, but also, David, let me say on the positive, one of the reasons this country of ours is as successful as it is, is because of migration, because of immigration. And we've been open historically. In recent years, we've become more closed. And I think that's a strategic error of the first order. I think we are denying ourselves uh, the talent that over the decades has made this country great. What about nuclear non-proliferation? Is that still a problem and people are getting possibly dirty nuclear bombs or materials? And are we worried about that? Uh, I worry about it. Obviously, in the case of you've now got nine countries that we, that we know have nuclear weapons in North Korea, which is the ninth, concerns me because uh, it's got a growing arsenal. The arms, you know, the, we can talk about denuclearization to the cows come home, but it's not happening. So that worries me. I worry about India and Pakistan both have nuclear weapons, but if I were going to bet where nuclear weapons might be used. It's that relationship that, that worries me. It's a really brittle, underdeveloped relationship. Pakistan is also a place where I would worry about what you were just getting at, the loss of control physically. Custody of a nuclear weapon could happen because of some rogue element within its, uh, within its military. And then I think the biggest question for the next few years will be Iran. Is Iran allowed to get close to having nuclear weapons? I think that would be a colossal mistake not only because of what Iran might do, but I think if Iran goes down that path and gets close to that point, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, well, won't be far behind. And if someone thinks the Middle East is bad now, just imagine a Middle East with that many fingers on that many triggers. What about cybersecurity and cyber terrorism? Does that worry you a lot? Sure, cyber is so central to so much of what we do politically, socially, economically, financially. And you know the comparison I like to use, David, it's, it's the Wild West. You got a lot of people with guns. There's no sheriff. There's virtually no laws. It's a really unregulated domain. And I, I worry about the gap between how important it is uh, and how dependent we are on it on one hand and simply how out of control it is on, on the other. So uh, what about global health? Obviously, we have a pandemic. But beyond the pandemic, what other global health issues are you worried about? Well, you know, when I wrote about it in the book, uh, it turns out that I think six of the seven greatest global health problems are not, repeat, not infectious disease. They're the diseases of lifestyle, diabetes, alcoholism, cancers caused by smoking. These are called non-communicable, non-infectious diseases. Uh, right now, obviously, though, we're still uh, dealing with the, the ravages of infectious disease. This year, it's COVID-19. Could be COVID-20 or 21 in future years. Could be bacteria that emerge that are resistant to to antibiotics. And what worries me is a lot of countries around the world simply don't have the, the health infrastructure to cope with it. Those that do, like China, don't meet their international obligations. 
The World Health Organization can't uh, fulfill its responsibilities. So I think the real challenge uh, right now for the world, including the United States, is either how do we strengthen the World Health Organization or how do we build something to complement or supplement it? Now, the man that you used to work for, George Herbert Walker Bush, used to say that the most important bilateral relationship in the world is U.S.-China. And he said it 25 years ago or so. I assume you still consider that the most important bilateral relationship in the world by far? Oh, absolutely. If the Franco-German-English relationship was central to the first half of the last century and the U.S.-Soviet to the second half, I think it's fair to say that for the foreseeable future, the U.S.-Chinese relationship is the single most important relationship in the world. And how that goes, uh, a lot of things will follow. And is it your view that uh, right now we're in a nadir of that relationship because of some of, the, of COVID-19 and Hong Kong and other things? Or do you think there's a better day to come? I, I hope there's a better day to come because if this relationship keeps deteriorating, it's not just dangerous what could happen between the United States and China, but it basically forecloses the possibility of U.S.-Chinese cooperation, be it to deal with the North Korea or to deal with climate change or to improve global health machinery. So I think the stakes are enormous, but you're, where you began is exactly right. This relationship was worsening, was deteriorating before COVID-19, and it's in even worse shape now. And by the way, the criticism, I think, is broadly shared in this country across party lines. So regardless of what happens this November, I think it's going to be tough sledding. And the, and, and the Chinese are demonstrating behavior against India, against Vietnam, against Hong Kong, against the Uyghurs, and so forth. They are clearly entering a phase where they are acting much more assertively and seem to have much less concern about how the United States and the rest of the world takes it. Let's go through some of the hot spots right now in the world. Um, do you think there's any realistic chance that Putin will withdraw from Ukraine or there will be any resolution of that problem in the near future? I think there's zero chance that Putin withdraws from Crimea. Uh, and I'm sad to say that the Russian taking of Crimea is popular in, in, in Russia. So I don't see that turning around anytime soon. I think there's some chance that sooner or later, if not Mr. Putin, his successor, might think about pulling back from eastern Ukraine. Uh, they would have to have some assurances about political autonomy, that there wouldn't be physical retribution against certain ethnic Russians. I think that's within the, the realm of possibility, again, if not on Putin's watch, then under his successor's watch. Now, the United States pulled out of the Iranian nuclear agreement. Uh, is Iran, Iran uh, moving towards a nuclear weapon, or you think they're not really doing that right now? Well, Iran is beginning to move beyond the limits on, say, uranium, the amount of enriched uranium they are allowed to have. They may be probing to see what it is they could get away with. What they're doing, though, in the process is reducing the amount of warning time the world would have if Iran suddenly one day decided to make a, a dash to get a, a nuclear capability or, or get close to it. And this is, to me, one of the questions of this administration's foreign policy. Uh, I understand the flaws with the 2015 agreement, but you've got to have something better to put in its place. And here and elsewhere, there's been a, a pattern where the administration would often withdraw from agreements unilaterally without having a, a preferable alternative. And I think we've created now real strategic questions uh, between ourselves and Iran. And in the process, ironically enough, in some ways, we've isolated ourselves at least as much or more uh, than Iran. I'd like to ask you about the Paris Global Climate Change Agreement. The United States pulled out of it, though. We're not officially out yet, I guess. 
Uh, do you expect that that will affect the ability of the world to actually accomplish the goals of the, of the uh, agreement? Or do you think ultimately the United States might come back in at some point? I think at some point the United States would come back in, for example, if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, but I actually don't think it matters that much. It matters symbolically. But the Paris Agreement, even if fully implemented, would not turn things around markedly on climate change, and it's not going to be fully uh, implemented. It essentially allows each country to determine the, uh, its own ambitions, its own goals. You add it up, and that's the global effort. It's inadequate. I'm not sure, David that you can negotiate a successful approach to climate change that way. It's essentially a version of the UN General Assembly, 190 countries coming together. I just don't see it working that way. Uh, I think you may have to have something much more narrow, maybe the 10 or 12 or 15 countries that account for the lion's share of global emissions, and they may have to cook something up amongst themselves. And then, for example, create an arrangement where other countries are incentivized to join these higher standards, or they're penalized if they don't. But I think this may have to be a new approach to multilateralism. In a funny sort of way, it's the model of trade. The World Trade Organization is a tribunal, but it's not really a negotiating forum anymore for trade. And what we have are much smaller multilateralisms. And I think that probably will be the path ahead in climate. Critical countries will come together, they'll set some rules, and then they'll tell other countries, if you want to say, have access to our markets, if you don't want to have tariffs placed on your goods, you're going to have to start, stop using coal or use a greater percentage of renewables or what have you. I think it's going to be more of a bottom-up approach than a global top-down approach if we're going to make progress. Final question, Richard. So if you look back on your extraordinary career in foreign policy, uh, what would you say you're most proud of having achieved? And uh, the kind of thing that you would say, this is my legacy, and this is what I've done that really um, is something my family is proud of, I'm proud of. I feel good. I mentioned one about the situation I was involved with, with working for President Bush, the father, both the Iraq, you know, the Gulf War, as well as with uh, getting Israelis and Arabs to sit down for the first time to discuss peace in, in Madrid. I feel good about some of the work I was able to get done in Northern Ireland, about narrowing the gaps, uh, gaps there. I feel actually good about this book. I feel that um, this is part of my way of giving back. I've been incredibly fortunate. I've had some fantastic uh, experiences. I'll let others judge about how effective I might have uh, or ineffective I might have been. But what I really want to do now is spend my time in some ways uh, teaching and trying to get more Americans to, to understand uh, about the world. Uh, again, I, I'm old fashioned. and I believe if we have a more informed pop population, more informed citizens, Sooner or later, it will result in, in better policy. And as you know, you know uh, we've made that a big priority for the Council on Foreign Relations, that increasingly we want, we want the organization to be in, in, the, uh, in the education business. So if I, can, if I can make some progress there, if I can make a difference there, uh, I, I think there's lots of ways in a society. You've done all sorts of things in philanthropy that have been extraordinary. I think one of the great things about this country is you have the opportunity to hopefully make a difference in lots of domains. So I've been lucky enough to be in government, uh, but now I'm trying to do it from the outside. Well, it's a uh, very impressive career and a very good book that I really enjoyed, The World, A Brief Introduction by Richard Haas. Thank you very much, Richard, for this conversation. Thank you, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. 
you can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.